Super duper. Well, in the first service, I got to say something I hadn't said in a long time. I got to say, children, you're released for Children's Church. And that was really exciting. And, and adults everywhere, just start, they just went crazy. They were just, <laughs> what? Our children get to go to children. Alas, you don't have that privilege. Uh, we do have show, uh, nursery for those of you that are zero to two. But hey, I, I want to give uh, two uh, bits of encouragement for you uh, before we get to the sermon this morning. Uh, first is, is, that, is to say this is, man, we, we have an enormous volunteer group for caring for these kids. And it is in fact, it's so significant that we, Kelsey and Meredith immediately took everybody over the age of 60 off of our list. And in regards to keeping them safe, and then a few other people who had particular medical issues that, who couldn't be back there, it was just unsafe for them necessarily in this season to be back there with our kids. And yet despite that, we have about 90 people who are signed up to take care of our children week in and week out, which is great because it means, one, our, our, we are being, we're fulfilling our, our mission, our calling to care for one another and helping us disciple our kids. At the same time, it also means we get, you as an adult, get to be here more often. But having taken a bunch of people off, we would love to add more people on to that list. And so if you're in a place, um, maybe you're a mom who you know, you've always wanted a break, and so Sunday's a place for a break, but this would be maybe an opportunity during this season alone just to say, I want to come back onto that volunteer list. If you're somebody who hasn't volunteered for our child care or children's ministry, if you could do so during the season while we're a little bit shorthanded because there are others in our church who simply medically or should not for, for health and safety reasons. And so we would encourage you if, you, if you can sign up to, to volunteer, we would love for you to be a part of that. You can connect with Kelsey or with Meredith. They're going to be at the table in the back. Hey, the second piece of encouragement I just want to give you is this, is um, you guys have been phenomenal in regards to the mask issue. I know this thing, no one likes this. No, I, I, at, the, at the least, they're annoying. At worst, some of you read things and you're confused. You're not even sure we should be wearing them. There's all kinds of crazy information out there. We don't know what's, and I understand you're in a place of uh, dissonance in your spirit about uh, mass. I mean, that word means you're kind of torn inside. All right, so, uh, uh, and, and yet, when you've come here, you've been so faithful to wear your mask. And so I just, I just want to say thank you for the way you've cared for each other um, and, and submitted yourself to one another um, and showed grace to each other. And so I'm just really grateful for this church. And I am delighted to be here, uh, here with you this morning, delighted to see so many of you that we haven't maybe seen in a while because we haven't had childcare or children's ministry. And so we're delighted to have you guys back. Yes, this is our second service. Uh, God's will and ways are a mystery. Two years ago, we did a million-dollar building project so that we would not have to be at two services. Uh, God has a great sense of humor. Um, but alas, here we are. We had a great first worship service, about the same amount of people we had here this morning and so for the second service, and so this, is, this has been good. Hey, we're going to begin a new series this morning in the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and, and turn there, and I will try to turn down the, the rocket propulsion. I don't know if what Ed was talking about was my excitement level or if it was flatulence that he was concerned about, <laughs> what exactly that was that I was... So, uh, what was so great about uh, my energy earlier, but um, time will tell. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to begin this morning in this new series, where we'll, and we're going to be in Ephesians for quite some time. But in order to give us a, an overview this morning is where we're going to begin. We're going to begin, we're going to read verses 1 and 2, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1, and then drop down to chapter 4 and read simply the first verse of chapter 4. Hear God's word, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. 
Here's what the word says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now drop down to verse seven in chapter one. Now in him we have redemption. The him is Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And these are the two verses that are really important. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then one last verse to help us in our overview of Ephesians. Go to chapter four, verse one. It says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, or for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, we're going to begin, uh, a, this is the beginning of a lengthy uh, and detailed uh, study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And well, why Ephesians? Well, there's a couple of things that have been on my mind. Uh, one is, this is less so, but this has definitely been on my mind the last couple of months, is I want to reemphasize the importance of the church Often people, um, when they want to uh, talk about the life of the church, the book that they go to is the book of Ephesians. And this is an incredibly important thing in this life of our country to be emphasizing, the importance of physically gathering to love and care for one another as God's people, as the church. George Barna, who's a well-known um, uh, statistician uh, who takes polls for, about the church and of, about the church worldwide, but particularly here in America, one of his most recent um, study has been on the effects of the pandemic to churches in the United States. And one of the things that they found is in the last course of the last couple of months that one-third of Christians are having no interaction with their church, either physically, like live, like a service like this, or online, one-third. And in fact, their studies show that something like 20% of those who attended church regularly pre-pandemic will not continue to attend church post-pandemic, whatever it means for us to be post-pandemic. That is a frightening number. There are great fears that the value of the local church will, begin, will be undermined. That concerns me, and I want us to value the church because I want you to love each other well. And that's important, but it's not as important as my greater, more personal, pastoral longing for us. This has been my experience in the book of Ephesians is that whenever, whenever God has done something significant in my life, it seems like the book of Ephesians is just hovering around it seems in the, in, in the backdrop and critical. My own father, some of you may know this, some of you don't, that my own father is a, is, a, is a pastor as well. He's been a pastor and preacher for 35 years. And when, during the critical years from me, from 12 to 15 years of age, my father did a three-year series in the book of Ephesians. Now, now I think it may be, this may be a typical thing for guys, but we kind of wake up later on. And this isn't like my first actual memory from life, but it's the first series I ever remember. That I, I, there is, it's the first time I remember walking, of, of my dad preaching. It's the first series I specifically, if I think back, and remember him preaching and, and being moved by his sermons. And so for me, as I have a child 
who's entering towards this direction, one of the great longings of my heart is that my daughter, that my son, as they hit 10, 11, 12 years old, that they would hear this. And because what God did in my heart over the course of those three years is the glories of who God is, he set me up for what happened to the next time Ephesians was really involved in my life. When I was 15 years old, when Grace came home to roost in a really critical way in the summer before my sophomore year in high school, uh, I, I, Grace seemed to land in my heart in a way that I had never understood before. And the response of my heart to that was an a insatiable love for God's Word, such so, so much so that for the rest of the time in high school, every year I would read all the way through the Bible. Every single year I'd read through the Bible. But not only that, but I began to memorize Scripture. And the first book of the Bible that I memorized in this insatiable hunger for the, Lord, for the Word was the book of Ephesians. And that it set me on a trajectory in the course of high school and in in, into college of a person who not only just loved the word, but actually loved the God of the word. And it was the book of Ephesians that did that. This little book that is only probably four pages long in your Bible has been used throughout the centuries to bring about radical change in people's life. For example, a guy named John McKay, who is a president of Princeton Seminary, he grew up in Scotland, and he said when he was 14 years old, he went and studied the book of Ephesians. And here's what he said, that when I opened the book of Ephesians, I saw a new world. Suddenly Christianity in the Bible was new to me. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes towards other people. I loved God for the first time and Jesus Christ became the center of everything in my life. And that is my longing for you. That the world would be open to you with Jesus at the center of your worlds. And this, Christ, this book exalts Christ beautifully. And so we're gonna be in Ephesians for what I estimate will probably be the next 18 months up to possibly two years. You did hear me correctly. 18 months to two years we'll be in this book. Now we'll pause for things like Christmas series and other topical series at various points in which we need to hit something else, but this is where we're gonna be finding our time for the next, the couple, next couple of years. That means if you're a, a sophomore in college or a junior in college, it means we ain't going anywhere for the rest of your time here. So settle in, put a birthmark in Ephesians because this is where we're gonna be. So today I want to give you, I want to begin this book by looking at an overview so that we can see the overarching message of Ephesians. So that, it, which is good, because, it, you know, for some of you, I just said 18 to 24 months, and you're just going, oh my goodness. Well, this way, if you need to, just listen to this, this sermon, and you can clip out of the rest of the next 18 months. Just, you don't think you can come back, this one will cover everything in one sermon, or you can just kind of listen to this every once in a while when you feel confused. So today, what we're going to be focusing on, we're going to be looking at two things in regards to the book of Ephesians. One, two points. First, we're going to look at the message of Ephesians, the message of Ephesians, and second, we're going to look at the structure of Ephesians, the message of Ephesians and the structure of Ephesians. Now, this is going to feel this morning like a bit like what we used to call Bible class, like Sunday school. And for some of you, this may be disinteresting to you, that this would be kind of so heady. But recognize this. An understanding of the content of God's word is not contrary to the spirit of worship. For one of the highest acts of worship that can be done by a creature of God is to subject one's mind to the thoughts of God's mind. 
That is that we are to study and think deeply about what God has communicated to us and understand that those thoughts that come from the mind of God do not come out as 140-character Twitter statements. They are, the thoughts that come from God actually come out in verses and paragraphs and whole chapters and books of the Bible that have structure and lines of thinking uh, to them. And so we want to pour over these paragraphs and understand the overview of the book so that we can better understand God's mind and God's thoughts in giving us this book. And so this morning, we want to get a sense of the whole so that when we get into the particulars, as we will definitely be into the particulars for the next 18 to 24 months, we can understand them in the larger context of the whole message of the book. And so there's, there's where we're going this morning. The message of, of Ephesians, that's where we're going to start. The message of Ephesians. What is the message? Well, if you're a studier of the scriptures, it is good, a great helpful practice in understanding books of the Bible at the beginning of a study like this is to know the occasion or the context and often that will give you the reason for why this book was written. Paul is writing in a Roman prison around AD 62, most scholars believe. And in fact, many scholars believe that he sends this letter and is writing this letter at the same time that he is writing both the book of Colossians to the church in Colossae and a little book called Philemon to a particular man. Now, most of Paul's letters, usually they come with a, a particular issue that he's addressing, he is, for example, let me give it to you this way, Galatians, for example. When he writes the book of Galatians, he is particularly dealing with an issue that is going on in the church there in Galatia where Judaizers have entered the church and are saying, hey, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, Gentiles, then you have to take on Jewish ethnic practices and identity in order to be considered a follower of Jesus. And so Paul addresses that and says, no, 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 no. No, we ain't going there. That is legalism. We are going to address it with the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians, for example, he has, he's, he's dealing with the issue that some have entered the church and are saying, and saying that the second coming of Jesus has already occurred. And you, this is understandably, everyone else who's still in the church and still walking around the earth is going, uh, that's a little bit distressing. If Jesus already came back and we, we didn't get to go. And so Paul has to address this issue with the church in Thessalonica. But then it's, the, Ephesians is different. We know of no specific reason as to why he's writing this book. There appears to be no crisis of the church of Ephesus. It simply seems to be a book that he is writing out of his love and affection for them. He spent a number of years in the, with the church. And indeed, what we find in the book of Ephesians is that it's a circular letter. It is a general letter. It is meant to be for the church in Ephesus, but for also for all the churches in that surrounding region. And therefore, because we don't know if this may any kind of major controversy or relational strife or dissension, it appears that Paul does not have a particular problem that he's addressing. And this sets Paul free to just run around and share the what he just goes, you know, what, if I just go, I don't have to address something specific. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address the whole plan of redemption. And that's what he's going to do in this book. But there is a, there is a the central theme that he's going to try to hit on, though. And I believe there is a central theme. For to understand the message of Ephesians, I think it's found in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. That this gives us the theme that he's going to lay out for the rest of the book. And it says this in verses 9 and 10. That in, uh, they're talking about the redemption of Jesus, and he says, He's making known to us in Jesus Christ the mystery of his will. This is what God is doing. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth. That means he's made known in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the the big turn. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here's what I want you to see about this verse. That I believe verses 9 and 10 give us the key to understanding the whole story of Ephesians, the whole book. This is the theme that it's going to run on. And in fact, I'd actually say, and this is a pastor kind of word, but I'd also say if you understand this verse and see, hear this in verse 9 and 10, it's actually giving us the message of the story of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, wrote a six-volume commentary on Ephesians. If you were to pick it up, it would be this wide, all the books. And he wrote this about Ephesians, about these verses. He said, I do not hesitate to assert that we have in this verse, speaking of verse 9 and 10, the key to the understanding of the chief practical purpose of this epistle to the Ephesians. Indeed, we can go further in saying this verse gives us the central theme of all of Scripture. And here's what that theme is. That God is making known his plan to make everything right and new, to bring everything under the authority of Jesus. Here's what these verses say, verses 9 and 10. God says, one, I have a plan for the world. And I am revealing that plan. That plan has been hidden. It's been a mystery. But in Christ Jesus, I'm revealing that mystery. I'm revealing it so you can know it. And at the center of that plan is Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 10, and here is the plan. Here's the plan. At the fullness of time, that means the end of all things, God will unite all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That that word unite all things means to bring everything under Christ. That means everything is brought under his authority. Perhaps you can hear it more clearly in the New Living Translation where it says this, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Well, what this is saying, Paul is saying here, is that this world that we look around right now and it is broken and it is shattered, it is, it is a mess and it is in pieces. At the end of all things, God's plan for the world is to make it all right again. That's God's plan. And to bring it all under the lordship and the kingship, the rule and reign of Jesus. This is where you're going. And so today may be full of strife and difficulty. We may live in a world of great brokenness. But Paul's saying, I want you to see. I want you to see why Jesus came. He came to bring everything under his rule and under his reign, to make everything right and new. And the exciting news, in particular, where Paul seems to go in Ephesians and I think the reason why, perhaps why Ephesians means so much to so many people is because the good news of being united in Jesus is also good news for your relationships, for your relationships. In the book of Ephesians, all kinds of relationships are going to get addressed. Marriage, parenting, children, workers. And one of the most critical storylines of the Bible is that we have broken relationships. One of my kids' favorite movies is the Lego Batman movie. And the opening scene of that is is Batman squelching Joker's plans to destroy Gotham City again. 
Which, of course, right, that's the way it's always supposed to start. And so Batman captures Joker, and Joker and Batman begin a dialogue in which it's really funny. In the movie, Joker is this more relationally and emotionally intelligent one. He's a really sensitive villain. And Batman, though, is, Batman is this very relationally aloof. He wants nothing really to do with Joker or really anybody else. And so Joker begins this dialogue with Batman, and they're arguing. And Joker is saying, listen, I'm your greatest enemy, aren't I? You've captured your greatest enemy. That's what you most want. And Batman goes, you're not my greatest enemy. And they have a whole argument about this. And then finally Joker in his frustration in not being considered Batman's greatest enemy goes, what, Batman, you're telling me there's nothing special about our relationship? And Batman goes, whoa. Batman doesn't do ships, as in relationships. And this is the theme of the whole movie. Well, here's the reality. You all do relationships. We just do them really badly. And so I have good news for you. The, go, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes, and the good news of the storyline of the Bible is that God has come to restore your relationships. But he begins with our vertical relationships. You see, relationship. You see, the story of the Bible is this is that the reason why all of your horizontal relationships, your relationship with your parents and your brothers and sisters, with people in the church and people in your workplace are broken is because our vertical relationship with God at the fall was broken. That when God made the world, he had us in perfect sync with him. We walked with God and we dwelled with God and life was good, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with each other. But when sin entered the world, what happens? Not only does it disconnect us from God, but it breaks all our other relationships. It breaks all other aspects. All other relationships broke with our relationship when our relationship with God was broken. And therefore, what happens in the Bible? As soon as this world is broken, what happens? Husband blames his wife. Brother kills brother. There's incest, rape, gossip, slander, murder, stealing. All these relational wrongs suddenly flood into the life in Genesis. And the truth is, this is the world that we live in now, where relationally we are either victims of relational sorrow, relational hurt, or we are victimizers. There's constant hostility. There is divorce and abuse, abandonment, war, oppression, injustice. And yet there's also those little things like gossip and betrayal and lies. This is the broken world that we find ourselves in, and we long for a better world. We long to be restored to a right relationship with our Father. That's what we want more than anything else. Ernest Hemingway, in his, book, in his short story called The Capital of the World, talks about this. And he tells the story of a Spanish father and his teenage son. The relationship between his father and his this son had become so strained and eventually actually shatters to the point that the, the son, whose, whose name is Paco, flees home and runs away. As a last resort, the father begins a long and arduous search for his son named Paco. And so he, and eventually he finds his way to Madrid. And in a one last-ditch effort, he puts an ad in the Madrid newspaper, hoping that his son would see the ad and respond to it. And here's what the ad says. Dear Paco, please meet me in front of Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. As Hemingway tells the story, the next day at noon, in front of the hotel, there are 800 Pacos who show up seeking forgiveness from their father. What's the point? The greatest longing, the greatest need of the human heart is to be forgiven, to be restored, and to be reconciled to our father in heaven. 
and to be then reconciled to others. You see, verses 9 and 10 is such good news. It's saying that we live in a broken world, but there is a better world coming when we will be reunited with God the Father through Jesus Christ and under his kingship, and we'll be reunited to one another as well. And so here's the theme of the message of Ephesians. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. That God's plan from eternity past is to reconcile and restore a people back into relationship with God the Father, and in so doing, to reconcile us to one another as well. That God's plan from eternity past is to reconcile and restore a people back into relationship with God the Father, and in so doing, to reconcile them to one another as well. And so here's how Ephesians is going to unfold. Chapters 1 through 3, we're going to hear the story of the world. We're going to hear the story of the unfolding of God's plan, of what he does in order to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God the Father. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we will see how that story of reconciliation to God has implications for all of our relationships. In chapter 4, we're going to see the theme of oneness and unity in the church, how Jew and Gentile who have once been divided and separated from one another now find oneness in Christ Jesus. In fact, that term one or oneness will be used 14 times in chapter 4. And with that will come commandment upon commandment to preserve our unity by laying aside our old selfish self. Because that's what's required if you're going to have relationships. In chapter 5, we're going to be given an example of what it is to walk in love in our relationships like Christ walked in love. And then in chapters 5 and carrying on into chapter 6, Paul will then apply that call to walk in love like Christ walks and apply it to our marriages to our parenting, to being a child and honoring our parents, and even to your working relationships. And then finally in chapter 6, we will see that in order to seek and live into the unity and reconciliation and peace in our relationships that God wants us to have, that this will involve spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Understanding that the main target of the evil one is to destroy the relationships amongst the members of God's family. There's nothing that gives the evil one delight. And there's nothing that makes him want to go to war more than seeing God's family fight each other. And so if I can give you this picture of the book of Ephesians, as if Paul is like a great old great-grandmother the matriarch of a large family, and it's some holiday event, and she has all of her her grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and she's telling them the story of how their family came about, how they maybe they immigrated from some far country or how they came out of some particular season of great sorrow and suffering and were saved in order to birth and become the great family that they are. And then having told the story of how they became a family, she then looks at her great-grandchildren and she says, and you are part of the legacy of this family. And living into the story means has a difference for what it means for how you treat the other members of this family and how you treat your mom and dad and how you treat your aunts and uncles and your cousins and how you interact with one another and how you'll even serve at the dinner table and care for one another. The message of Ephesians, we learn of God's plan to unite us all together, each of us, including you, and that we are to live into this grand story in our relationships today. Isn't that a great message? That's why it means so much, because we so desperately want our relationships to be right. 
And isn't it nice to think about the idea of reconciled relationships? I mean, I love that. Don't, don't we like messages of peace and reconciliation? I mean, Miss America loves that, right? Right? We just a, a place where we will all just get along again together. But if you're like me and you're a cynic or a pragmatist and you're like, you know what? That's nice. That's nice that we're going to be unified in Jesus in heaven. But what about today? I mean, it's nice to talk about what your marriage ought to look like, but you don't have the marriage that I got. You don't have the challenges that I got. That's nice that heaven's going to be that way. But how do we, how do we actually begin to experience that now? In other words, what I'm saying is this, the same question that we have about relationships, we ask about everything that the Bible calls us to. Every time there's a moral or ethical call in the scriptures, the question we look at our lives and we go, how in the world do I live into that? In other words, we're asking this age-old question, how do I change? Or even more, maybe more challenging is, how do we as a church change to be a more loving people, living into the call of the gospel? And I want us to point to an odd place this morning to where we're, gonna, we're actually going to see a dynamic a dynamic that is critical for us to grasp and understand if we're going to move consistently towards becoming a people who are changed and loving in our relationships. It's found in an odd place in Ephesians. We find it in the structure of Ephesians. Now, that is a nerdy thing to say. What I want you to see is this, is that the structure of Ephesians provides the biblical framework for how you grow and are transformed as a believer how you learn to love the church and love those around you like you ought to. So here's the structure of Ephesians, and I'm going to explain the logic of this. Just a second. Here's the structure. I kind of already have gone over it. Chapters 1 through 3 is section 1. It's all about God's work of saving and reconciling a people to himself. Now, in the understanding of the structure of the book of Ephesians, you have to understand what I'm going to call gospel grammar. Some of you are English teachers. Some of you love grammar. You are weird. No one really wants to hang out with you. You correct us all the time. Could you please stop? Write Hogan's. Write Abbey Files. We like, we like, our, some of you love grammar. But I'm going to give you a grammar lesson. It's called the gospel grammar this morning. And that is that in chapters 1 through 3, all we get are in the indicatives of the gospel. Indicatives are statements of fact, statements of reality, things that are absolutely true. They are not imperatives. Imperatives are commands. Go do this. You ought to do this. You must do this. That's what imperatives are. And what we see in the structure of Ephesians is chapters 1 through 3 is nothing but indicatives. In fact, there's only one command in all of chapters 1 through 3, and it's the command to remember what life was like before the indicatives of Christ hit your life. That's the only commands. And then what we see in chapters 4 through 6, after hearing about all of these facts of reality, all these objective truths about what God has done in Christ Jesus to win redemption for us, then in verse chapter, chapter 4, it shifts. And here's the point where it shifts. We read it earlier, chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, this is the hinge verse. Paul is turning the corner. I've given you the good news. Now I'm going to give you the implications, right? It's that key word, therefore. And if you've ever been in a Bible study group, whenever someone comes to the word therefore, you then ask the question, what is the word therefore? Therefore. 
And it's pointing back to chapters 1 through 3. And because of chapters 1 through 3 and all these amazing things that Jesus has done for us, you're to live in light of that. And so we see in chapters 4 through 6 our commands left and right. In fact, there's 40 imperatives in chapters 4 through 6. 40 imperatives. And they're all about how we're to live out and live into these reconciled, seek reconciled and unified relationships. Now, here's what I want you to see. I'm going to tell you the significance of this order. What we have in the order is we have the indicatives first, what Jesus has accomplished, statements of, of, of fact, and then the imperatives is important for understanding how you're to grow and how you're to live your life. And they're significant in this way. One, it is the difference between religion and Christianity. The difference between religion and Christianity is getting the imperative and the indicative mixed up. Religion says that in order to get the blessing of God, you must live out the commands of chapters 4 through 6 in order to get the blessings that are talked about in chapters 1 through 3. You must earn it. You must merit it. That's what religion says. And this is why most Southern Christians say that their favorite Bible verse is the one that says, God helps those who help themselves. Which is odd, since you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. There's a lot of verses there. It doesn't say that. Christianity says what? God does all the work. In Christ Jesus, he has labored and won blessings for you. And then let me give you an example of another book of this. It's this neighboring book, the book of Galatians. And in this, we see the gospel primer again. It's the same thing. Chapters 1 through 3. Here's what God did. Here's what God did. Here's the blessings you have in him. Now live in light of it. And this is the gospel grammar. This is what you need to always understand as to how you're going to grow is you must always keep the indicatives of the gospel first, and they will lead to the imperatives of the gospel coming to be in your life. Don't you like simple grammar rules? Unlike the English grammar. Why anybody would want to study English grammar, it makes no sense. If you've ever learned or studied another language, you realize that the English language, that we have just completely made it up as we have gone along. It is utterly incoherent, our, gra our grammatical rules. Like one of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, loves to talk about this and how he used to struggle in school. And his, his teacher asked him one day, Brian, what's the I before E rule? And he said, I before E, always. And she said, Brian, are you an idiot? And he said, apparently, apparently I am. He said, so what's the I before E rule? He, he said, this is what he remembers, or at least in his mind, what he remembers his teacher teaching him about the I before E rule. That what she said was I before E except after C. And when sounding like an A as a neighbor or way. And on weekends and holidays and all throughout May. And you'll always be wrong no matter what you say. Now, this is how you've, many of you have found, felt like your Christianity has gone about, like trying to keep up with English grammar. But well, understand this. If you want to grow, keep these things in mind. Keep the gospel grammar in mind. Indicatives come before imperatives. It's simple. It's wonderfully good news. You don't have the blessing of God because you earned it, but because he did everything to accomplish the blessings for you. But this is not just good news in the grammar. But this, this, diff, this monumental difference stretches the links between heaven and hell, but it also gives you the, the framework for growth in your life. You see, embracing the objective statements of fact about the gospel in chapters 1 through 3 is the fuel that will transform your life. 
so that you become more obedient and more loving in your relationships. Let me rephrase this in a couple different ways in the hopes of being clearly understood. The doctrines of the Christian faith, chapters one through three, what I know and believe concerning about God are foundational for the practices of the Christian faith. Knowing and believing and embracing the doctrines of the Christian faith are foundational for the practices of the Christian faith. Let me say it another way. The knowledge of what I am in Christ is what creates the desire for me to be what I ought for Christ. Say it another way. It is only the fuel of Christian truth that will drive the wheels of Christian living. And this is what we see throughout the scriptures. When God gives commands, when he gives the commands, the the most famous commands in the scriptures, the Ten Commandments, does he give the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel and say, do this and I'll save you? No, he saves them from Egypt first, then he gives them the commands. Let me give you another illustration. Remember, there was a woman who in her In her wonder and love for Jesus, she does something radical, and she goes and she breaks perfume over Jesus' feet, and she wipes him with her hair and with her tears, and she cares for him in front of this this very vulnerable spot in front of all of these Pharisees and leaders in in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, this woman has done this because she loves me, and she loves me with such an intensity of love that produces this amazing act of devotion. And here is Jesus' logic as to why this woman loved in such a radical way. He said, because to whom much is forgiven, they love much. And to whom little is forgiven, they love little. You see the logic? That the measure of my obedience will be in direct proportion to the measure of the means by which I've experienced the love of God for me. He loves first. I love because he first loved me. And the measure of my love will be in measure a part of my appreciation of God's saving mercy. And if there's a weakness in places of disobedience, in places where my life lacks love, it's not because to say I need to just go work harder at those things, that's a good thing to do, but because there's something in me that fails to appreciate God's love for me. And we come down to a pithy statement that is really helpful and has become well known the past generation. And I think it's valuable. And I've said it a few other times. I want to bring it back again tonight or this morning. It's by a man named Jack Miller who says this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Obedience comes first and it's the means by my acceptance. But Christianity says, I am accepted and therefore I obey. And so let me ask you, how do you deal with the problems when you look at your life and you go, man, I just lack love. Man, I have a temper. I've... I have this problem of just like lashing out at people. I've got this problem of lying. I don't even know why I do it. I just kind of find myself saying untruth. Is your, here's, is your approach, here's the approach of so many people, is to look at someone and say, well, you know what you should do? You could stop lying. You, or or we, we're like oh, ancient monks, like, from, the, like uh, from a Monty Python skit in which we take God's word and we go, whack, obey, whack, obey, whack. Obey, and this is our means of trying to get you to obey, and this is, this is what we call legalism. And even if you take God's word and you say, you know what, you, you see this, you are not doing this. You are, stop it. You stop it. This is not the effective way to bring change into people's life. Here's the effective way to bring change. 
That where you find that you are lacking in your love and in your obedience to God, that points to the fact that there is something about God's grace and God's love for you that you have not yet embraced in such a way that it flows out into your life. And so what we must do is enlarge our mind and our appreciation for God's love for us, which means this, you go back to chapters one through three so that you can do the things that chapters four through six tell you to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. Chapters four through six still exist. This is called pastoral wisdom and pastoral balance. Notice he gives equal weight first to the gospel indicatives and then equal weight to the gospel imperatives. Three chapters for each. Some, some might think that if you know the nature of God's salvation, like if I just get my theology right, then that will automatically lead to right obedience. No, 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 no. And some have actually, this comes across every 15, 20 years. We get, oh, we love grace. And so actually if we, if we want to change, we've got to know the gospel. And so we can't ever talk about calling people to do anything. We can't get in and say, hey, you need to show justice and mercy and compassion. We're not allowed to say that. That's what some people would say. That if, if you are pastorally and prophetically, that you are never to, to be, be calling people these hard things. No, all you should do is ever focus on the gospel. But that is not what Paul does. Paul provides the good news. He keeps it first and primary. But then he calls us to live our life in view of that good news. Paul takes the divine peaks of theology and beautiful revelation, the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And having done that, he says, as he says in chapter four, verse one, now walk worthy of this calling to which you have already been called. Already been called. And the mountain peaks of God's theology must be applied to the valleys of life where we live today. And therefore, this is incredibly important for what we call sanctification, how you change, how you grow. And the Christian life begins by emphasizing and always daily running back to the indicatives of the gospel, not to the exclusion of gospel imperatives, but as the means of fueling you to carry out gospel imperatives. That's the call. And therefore, if you're having problems, the calling is to go back day in and day out to the gospel and say, I've got to press this into my life. I gotta beat it in, I gotta punch it in, I gotta learn it, I gotta know it until it becomes saturated into my heart and God's love for me begins to pour out towards other people. And so this is what we're gonna try to do for the next, you know, whatever, two years, 18 months. I don't wanna wanna shortchange ourselves, shape your expectation, we'll go two years. So we're gonna use Ephesians and we're gonna try to press in that truth. Actually, let's, let's call the word beat. We're going to beat it in. See, that's the word that Martin Luther used. He said this, and we end with this. Martin Luther said this, growing in godliness consists of this, to know the gospel and to beat it into your head continually. Church, let me introduce you to Ephesians. It's the hammer. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, how many days, how many days have we sought to change ourselves through straining in our own efforts? And Lord, you want us to give effort. But God, I pray that our first effort would always be to come sit at the feet of the good news of Jesus. 
That we would not try to be doing the, the, the Christian life extended far from the gospel or think that the good news and the blessings of the gospel is something you get early and then now you move on to obedience. Lord, would we remain tethered like an IV line to the gospel that would give us life day in and day out so that we might become a people who are known for our love, for our submission to one another, for our unity and our oneness, for our affection, for our honor and respect that we give one another. And so, Lord, where we are lacking, would your spirit come and press in the truth of your love for us, your honor for us, your value for us, and change us, change us by the power of the gospel, and invite us into a greater story that would shape and reshape the perspective and purpose of our life. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.